0: voice. Who in this room feels like they got a good night's sleep today? Raise your hand. I'm not going to raise mine. I'm just, I'm just doing it to say that you should. I did not get a good night's sleep last night. Um, now I have a two-year-old, so the, the last time that I've gotten a good night's sleep, we don't even want to go there. We, we as, a, as a society and as a culture, we, we lack sleep. <clears throat> you have to ask yourself, even if you might have had one good night of sleep, when's the last time that you can say that you just felt truly deeply rested. For me, it's about five years ago. Five years ago, a little over five years ago, is when I first started jumping into seminary work. And then from there, it was seminary, change of jobs, marriage, get a house, figure out how to fix the house. There's always something to fix on your house. Right? Our houses are like highways. By the time they finish the construction zone, they like, got to start where they started because it's already bad again. Right? Like, you're just always doing something. and Then you add the beauty, beauty of a child to the mix, which I love him, but man, he is exhausting. Right? Sleep and rest is just not something that has been a part of my reality for much time. And, and if you look at studies that we've had throughout the years, I think I'm not alone, and neither are you. Sleep and rest is something that we as a society are desperately deprived of. It's scary. On average, about 40% or more of adults get a significantly insufficient amount of sleep and rest. So odds are, just about half of us in this room, statistically, this morning, are coming here not well-rested, not feeling that peace and that rest. If you talk to the average high schooler, it's about 72% of people. And in the high 50s in middle school, they're not getting enough sleep. It's, a, it's an epidemic. We know that word now in the culture that we live in. Right? It's the silent epidemic, or I guess the lack thereof, because we're not sleeping. Right? We need sleep. And when we don't get it, it starts to impair a whole bunch of different things. One of the biggest things is that we actually can't absorb information and process it well when we don't sleep enough. Part of the nature of our sleep is not just that our bodies can't keep going, but that our minds can't keep going. And so we need rest to take what we've brought in that day in our brains and to process it and to store it. My son right now loves to watch the movie Inside Out. And if you haven't seen it, I suggest you do. It's this kind of like this view of of an 11-year-old girl from, from the people that run inside of her brain. Like there's a character for joy, a character for anger, a character, and they're like running her show in there. And you see, like, at the end of the day, when she goes to sleep, they send all of her short-term memories to the long-term department. <laughs> That's what sleep is for. It gets our, our stuff processed. And when we don't get it, it affects all kinds of things. We wake up irritable. Our bodies actually suffer. You Weight gain issues are part of the lack of sleep, amongst many other things. But we don't absorb information. Our minds don't work at 100%. We're dragging. We're slow. And so then we fill in with things like coffee. Or as I like to call it, the nectar of the gods. We need sleep. It's not something that we have. Why do we lack sleep? Because we live in the fastest paced society ever. We do. Everything is speedy. Our culture does not stop. If you think about it, our culture, we had to invent things like fast food or speed dating because we don't have time to meet people or to eat. That's the world that we live in. We actually idolize a lack of sleep. Tell me if you've ever been part of this conversation. You go to meet with somebody, and you're having lunch. Maybe you haven't seen them for a long time. And inevitably, you start, they start to talk about the things in life that keep them busy. Oh, I'm just so busy. You know, I'm running with this, and then I'm starting to get this new business started. And, you know, I have two kids, and they're driving me nuts. And, and you're like, oh, me too. And then you start to, like, upstage each other with your level of busyness. You ever have those conversations? Right, well, I have, like, a 90-hour week. Oh, I have, like, a 110-hour week. Well, I have like a $400, there's not that many hours in a week. Yeah, I know, I figure it out somehow, I don't know how I do it, look at me, right? We, we, we actually, as a culture, idolize busyness. Because when we're busy, we're being productive, and what we produce is what defines us and gives us value, do you see how it kind of adds to the mix? And then, on top of that, we have this beauty of technology, And this is not not social media related. I'm not harping on on that. But one of the things that technology was supposed to do is to make our lives easier. Well, I don't know about you. Technology makes my life harder. I spend more time trying to figure it out or fixing it than to have it actually help me. If you ever want to see frustration at technology, watch me ask my Alexa at night to try to do something for me. I have to talk to her like she's deaf. Alexa, please... I didn't say movies, I'll just do it myself, right? Technology does not make our lives easier, and as a matter of fact, one of the things that it's done is it's overloaded us. This is from an article in the New York Post in 2014. It says, we also see changes, because of tech, in our attention and our thinking. Technological advances were supposed to free up creative thinking, but the mass of incoming information has actually eroded our attention and our creativity. People have less time to reflect on anything as they become dominated by a need to act, a need to be online, robotically, always checking, multitasking, stimulates the internal chaos and fragments our attention. It's by an author, Stephanie Brown. This is five, six years ago. Can you imagine how much worse it's gotten? We are so overwhelmed with information and so underwhelmed with the time to process it because we don't experience rest we just need to absorb more and more and more right. and so we have all this knowledge but very little wisdom because wisdom is having information and knowing what to do with it we never take the time to figure out what to do with what we know we just keep sucking it in we don't find rest and so we are tired we come to church in the morning tired We enjoy our time of worship. We love talking to people. But how many of you are just really excited when you get home at the end of the service and you get to kick off your shoes and sit down? Right? We want that. Because we deeply, as a people, desire and need the rest that we are not getting. And so the question is, we just have faith as this checkbox amongst many other things. Not because we're not excited about our faith. Not because we're not passionate about our faith. Because we don't have time and we're exhausted. There's got to be a better way forward than this. There's something I always found weird in Scripture. Uh, maybe you're with me on this. Do you ever notice that there's a whole lot of times in, in the Bible where the Lord speaks to people in dreams? Like a ton. It seems like every time God has something truly important to say, He does it in a dream. Which for me, I, it never made sense. I, you know, one of the joys that I have is I love at the end of the day when my wife and I fall, get in bed together and we're about to fall asleep, you, know, you get to have some time just conversating together and hope by then usually the phones are down and you know it's, it's the pillow talk part of the, of the day. And I, I've learned that is never the time to bring up some kind of deep conversation that I need to be having because odds are neither one of us are going to remember what the other said in the morning. Right? Dreams... When you're asleep, when you're, when you're half lucid, when you're half there, why would that be the time that the Lord chooses to have these deep, meaningful conversations with people? If it was me, I would, I would do it in the midst of the, of the awakeness. I would do it right before lunch, before they get that 2 p.m. hangover feeling, from, or food hangover feeling. Right? I would come at like 11 a.m., Right, after they've had breakfast and they've gone to work, they've maybe answered some emails, and I would show up right then and I'd say, all right, you're with it. You're, you're the most awake you're ever going to be today. Listen, and I would come with a gong and I would announce myself, but that's not what he does. He comes quietly in the midst of dreams. I think here's why. This is a, a professor I had in, in college that uh, gave me this quote, and it, it, was, it was profoundly, it, it really impacted the way that I think about uh, rest and dreams and how the Lord speaks to us. He says this, dreams are a time when we are perhaps the most receptive to the things that we hope for, and the most certain of the things that we have not seen. It's a paraphrase of Hebrews 11.1. 1. Dreams are the one time that that lucid, that calm, that relaxing time in our lives are, are the one time when we aren't go, 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 go. When the phone's charging. When we can't be working because everything's closed and we couldn't make phone calls if we wanted to, it'd be rude, unless you're dealing with China. right? And so we're, we're in this restfulness, in this state, and we're dreaming and we're, we're suspending certain levels of what the world says are realities and the way that things have to be. And so the Lord comes to the people in Scripture at a time when they're actually the most receptive to hearing something that He might say to them that is profoundly countercultural. And so He comes in dreams. He doesn't like to compete through the noise of the day. He finds them when they're the most receptive. And so we know, we know that we need to find rest. We know that we need to find sleep. We know that we need to find quiet. The question is, well, how do we do that? And the answer that we find is in Matthew 11. We're going to spend most of our time there today. So let's read it together and then we'll dig in. It says this. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So, first off, this passage comes in the midst of a kind of a time of judgment in some way. The Lord has done, Jesus has done all these miracles in various places. And the people, despite seeing the miracles and hearing him teach, they aren't receptive. They're not listening. They're not getting it. And so he starts to condemn a whole lot of these places. Right? And in the midst of that, we have this, this kind of judgment on the people. He goes, listen, isn't it, isn't it weird? The Lord has chosen to hide things from the wise and reveal it to little children. Right? A few weeks ago, we talked about what it means to have faith like a child. Right. That we trust the Lord with that with that. That, that deep kind of innocence. And So here he repeats it. He says, you know, the wise have things hidden, but the children are the ones that understand. And the only way we're going to get it is by Jesus revealing it. And then he gives us this passage about rest. And he says a few things. The biggest is this. Rest is not something that we can create or find for ourselves. Come to me and what? I will give you you rest. Not if you do these things, rest will be a part of your life. Here's the seven steps to finding rest. Here's the way that you clear your calendar so that you can have more rest. You should quit your job so that you can have more rest. No, come to me and I will give you the rest that you're seeking. It's not something that we attain to, but it is a gift from God. And the only source of rest that we could get is actually from God. Everything else we get is a nap. He's offering us a deep 12 hours of sleep with nothing to worry about the next day and no children in the house. He's offering us the true rest that comes from being content with life, from having sufficient actual physical rest. And he's offering it to us not just physically but emotionally and spiritually as well. He's telling us, I will give it to you as a gift. But how? Through this idea of a yoke. What is a yoke? I put a picture up for you. A yoke is this. We can see that it looks like physically, but what's what's really the purpose of it? It's this contraption. A lot of times it's related to oxen, uh, but we use it for a bunch of different animals uh, throughout Scripture. And it's this contraption that really serves two purposes. Number one... It's for steering, right? You, you can see a yoke that has one oxen in it or one animal in it. And they put it on and then they have ropes and they can use that to steer the neck of the animal. But usually it's paired. There's usually two in a yoke together. And it looks just like that. And predominantly the yoke in scripture is given to us as a training device. What you would have is you would have an animal who has been used to being in the yoke on one side and then they would bring a younger animal and put it into the other side so that that animal would learn from the older one. In the beginning, as they would pull something, the older animal would take the brunt of the work and take the burden off of the younger one and allow it to just follow and learn and observe. But at the same time, the yoke is rigid. It forces the younger animal, to go along with what the older does. Right? You can't get in the yoke and then just run off on your own. They should make yokes for toddlers. I mean, they do. They're those leashes. I always thought those were weird-looking until I had one. No, I'm like, I will take it. Give me one of those. Yeah, I'll, put, I'll put my kid on a leash. Don't judge me for one second. I do not care. <laughs> but, but that's what the point of it is. It puts them in a position where they have to follow along and be led... And they don't have a choice. And at first it's under compulsion. But what happens is, over time, the animal gets used to doing the work inside of that yoke. And it becomes natural. And they just work together. And they say that on average, if you take the weight that a single oxen can pull, two of them can actually pull triple that weight, not double. Because when they're working together, they're able to accomplish a whole lot more. And so the yoke is this thing that trains that's the first way that we see it talked about in scripture. And the analogy becomes really easy and we'll get there, but there's another way that it talks about it. It talks about the yoke in scripture a lot of times. There's over 60 references to yokes throughout scripture, and it references it in the relationship of slavery and of burden. And that one's a little darker. We don't like to think about slavery and burdensomeness. Leviticus 26.13 I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves and I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. When the Israelites were under bondage, under slavery in Egypt, he talks about it as if there was a yoke placed upon him, upon the Israelite people. 1 Kings 12, your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and he will serve you. Acts 15, this is the, the Jerusalem council when they're debating on whether or not the Gentiles should have to follow certain laws. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And so, yes, on the one hand, it's this this device that causes the animals to do what they're supposed to be doing, to learn and to grow and to be shaped by the older. On the other hand, it is a symbol for for slavery and for, for entrapment, for being stuck. So here's how this breaks down in Matthew 11. Every one of us, whether you believe it or not, we have a yoke upon our head. We're slaves to something. We are. We're all slaves to sin, first of all. But we are slaves to a whole host of of masters. We are slaves to money. We are slaves to appearances. We are slaves to prestige. We are slaves to success. We're slaves to wanting to be loved and cared for. There's a million things in this world that enslave us. And many of us are slaves to busyness. And so the question is not putting on one yoke or not putting on a yoke. The the, the reality is every one of us has some type of a yoke upon us. It's just the nature of how we are built. We are built to be mastered by something. We are creatures. We are not the creator. We are the created. And sometimes it's hard for us as people to remember that because when it comes to the creation, we are the crowning glory of it. There is nothing made by God in the creation more glorious than mankind. That's why everything is good as he creates. And then when he makes man and then woman, it's very good. We're the only thing that is actually designed to be mirrors and reflections of his character and his goodness in the world. We are supposed to look like, not physically, but in, in the way that we operate... Like God, he creates us to be mirrors of himself in this world. And so he calls us very good after he makes us. But yet we are creatures. We serve something. It is built into your DNA. And you might say, I don't serve anybody, Vince. I'm my own master. Challenge. Come talk to me. Give me five minutes. I'll convince you. We all serve something. We're all slaves to something. And in the midst of that, Christ invites us to put on a different kind of yoke. Jesus comes in the midst of our busyness and our burden and our fatigue and our we can't take it anymore and our our lack of hope and our downtroddenness. And he tells us, put my yoke on if you are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. When you put my yoke on, rest is, is a part of the equation. You are that younger animal that is coming into the midst of it, and I will bear the brunt of the load if you come into my yoke. Every other yoke that you can think of is forcing you to bear it yourself. And because you follow those, because you allow yourselves to be enslaved to the world around us, because you put on the various yokes that have nothing to do with him, and you try to go your own way and to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps, because that's how we operate, we cannot find rest, because there is no rest in doing anything that way for any kind of length of time. And the Lord knows it. That's why he commands us to to, do the Sabbath. You think it's crazy that there's ten commandments that God gives us. Like, there's ten important things that we have to do and one of them is to, to rest. I don't know about you. In my house, you never have to tell me to rest. If I have the opportunity <laughs> and he's napping, I'll, I'll rest. You don't have to force me to take a vacation. Please. But it's one of the commands because he knows that we won't do it. We do not rest on our own. We need to find it in the midst of him. And so he promises that his yoke, compared to any other that you might wear, is going to be easy. It's not easy in the sense that everything's always hunky-dory, but it's easier than going your own path. He says, put my yoke on. My burden is light. I will give you rests if you just strap that on. That's all you have to do. This passage is a question of influence. We acknowledge that all of us are influenced by something. We can't avoid it. But the question is, what are we going to allow to be our primary guideline? What's going to be the fence posts that we erect in our lives that guide us along the path? What path are we going to choose? Are we going to walk with the Lord or are we going to walk on our own? One of those will find rest, one of those will not. I promise you, I can guarantee you that. And most of the world doesn't know this. The key to the Christian faith is to understand the idea that you get to choose your influence. You get to pick. We're freed by the cross of Christ. We don't have to walk with the way of the world. We choose to do it every day actively. We don't have to. You can choose your yoke and your influence. You can choose to put your faith and trust in him. And you can choose to say, the world tells me this, but I'm not going to buy it. Well, they're going to think you're weird. You can say, I'm going to choose not to pursue success at the detriment of my own sanity. You're going to say, I'm not going to choose to be dishonest and not forthright in order to selfishly gain because I trust that the Lord will take care of me if I just do what he calls me to do. You can choose to have him be the primary influence of your life. You, you can. You're able to do that. You're empowered by the grace and the mercy of God every day in your lives. To choose his yoke over the yoke of the world. That's the freedom you have as Christians. I think a lot of us don't think that. Oh, the world's just too much this way. You have the freedom. You can get up tomorrow. And you can say, I'm not going to buy it anymore. The world's selling me a product that will never make me happy. It's like the new iPhone. The moment you buy it, a new one comes out then you've got to buy that, then you've got to buy that. It's never-ending. If you make this much money, you'll want this much. If you make this much money, you'll want this much. Do what the Lord calls you to do and work with whatever he gives you as a result of it. And be faithful in the midst of that and trust that he will provide and he will take care of you. That's the yoke that he asks us to put on. He's saying, I can see how exhausted you are with life. I can see how tiring it's been to live the way that you've lived and the world that you live in. I have a better way. It's easy and light in comparison. Probably not at every turn, but in the end. It's a way forward that'll let you find true rest. Rather than working harder or more, I'll teach you to be content. Rather than worrying to death, I'll secure your future so that you can breathe just a little bit. And rather than placing the burden of what's happening in this world and what to do with it on you, I will handle the world I will create a plan, I will follow it through by sending my son to the cross and then the only thing I'll ask you to do instead of worrying about what's to come is to just be faithful and trust that I have a plan and I'll take care of it. That's the glorious Christ we serve. What's the best way as we wrap up this time looking at leadership as Christians that we can lead? We put on his yoke. That's the great irony of the Christian faith. The way that you lead is by becoming a slave. The only difference is you choose who you're going to be a slave to. No one's forcing you. I don't know about you, but I want to enslave myself to the one who has my best interest at mind and heart at all times. I want to lay down the things that I freak out and worry about every day of my life, whether it's good enough whether I'm good enough for my family, whether I'm good enough for my church, whether I'm good enough for the work that I'm doing, whether I'm, I'm good enough for my children, I, I, I lay all of that down and give it to him and just walk in faith and trust that he will provide. His yoke will guide you in the right directions. He will not steer you wrong. He never has and he never will. I always joke, you know, many of you guys know that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a product of, of two divorces, And so I I kind of over the years, you know, trusting men in life has has been a challenge. And I always joke that Jesus is the only man that's never failed me. I can't think of a single time that I've placed my faith in Christ, that I've actually been able and willing to take a bold step, and that that I've taken that step forward that he's let me down. I can't think of one. He doesn't. He doesn't always do what I want, but he does what I need. If you're tired, if you're weary, and I'm not just talking about a lack of sleep. If you need rest in your life, and we all do, take his yoke and put it on. Let him guide you. Let him steer you. Let him shape you. Let him place the thoughts that he wants in your head and let those thoughts and beliefs and truths be the thing that guide you and and, and abandon the others. And man, he's going to work in that you will come home at the end of the day you might actually be physically exhausted but yet find true rest like you've never found before i promise you that it's the way that he works the whole of first and second timothy and titus is about this tension of the world versus the leaders that god is calling and raising up the world thinks this way but i call you to be this way To guard the deposit. The world listens to this false teaching. Not so with you. You're going to be yoked to me instead. The world seeks an eye for an eye. But not so with you. You are going to show grace. The world paradoxically creates more pain just by trying to avoid pain. I'm going to teach you to suffer well and suffer with hope. The world believes one thing, but I created you. So you'll believe what I tell you to. And if you do that, you will find rest. I promise you. And that is the greatest way that we can lead in this world around us. Because I can tell you, when you walk outside these doors, you're going to encounter a whole lot of people that don't have rest. Many of them haven't had rest for decades. And when you, when you come into the midst of their lives, and you come with the hope in Christ Jesus, and the rested nature that he provides, and you can share that with somebody, with a brother or a sister... They'll want to know what it's all about. And you can say the same thing that Jesus says to you come to me. Come with me. Come to church. Sit down. Hear the gospel. Understand what Christ has done for you and what he offers you. And then put on his yoke and never turn back. This is the end of our our time in in looking at leadership. Uh, For the next, to give you a sense of the rest of the year, for the next three weeks, we're going to do a sermon series on prayer and fasting, on what it looks like, what prayer is, how it works. Many times we are told and convinced that we need to spend more time in prayer, but we don't really talk about how to pray or what prayer is or how it works or the nature of it and what scripture says about prayer. So we're going to spend three weeks digging into that and we're going to call it 21 Days of Prayer and Fasting. And so one of the things I'm calling you as a church to do in the midst of that is to spend the next 21 days in prayer and fasting. Does that mean you shouldn't eat anything for 21 days? Please don't do that. Please. All right. If you, if you have a, need to un, have an understanding of what fasting actually entails and what the point of it is and what it means, we'll, we'll talk about it over the next three weeks. For now, just spend time in prayer. All right, we'll get there. But it's a good time, it's a good season to be doing that as we gear up for Advent because our, our, our church and our leadership is going to be spending some time in prayer over the next month. As we meet, we're going to start to have conversations about what this church is going to look like moving forward. What kind of people we're going to look to hire. Right? We need to have some staff that we bring in to do some of the things and ministries that in the midst of COVID have kind of subsided. And so we're going to be praying about that and thinking about that. And so what I invite you to do as, as the people of this church is to pray with us to pray for your leaders, to pray for your elders and your deacons and your staff and for your pastor deeply, that the Lord might be at work in this place, that he might be stirring up something new. And that if we're willing to put on his yoke, that just watch and see what he does with Stowe Press in the upcoming year. Right? We'll do that for three weeks, and then for Advent we're going to look at a series called Greater Than as we explore throughout Scripture the various types of Christ that we see and how Jesus is the greater of those. And that will get us through the end of the year and into Christmas, which, by Lord's grace, we will be able to have in person here on Christmas Eve. Because as much fun as it was to sit in my PJs and watch myself preach last year, I think I'd much rather be with all of you guys. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we are, are so blessed and so grateful that we can come to you in the midst of our deepest fatigue so we confess to you that we are tired we're tired in every way we're tired with the things that you that we have to do throughout the week we're tired with the jobs that we have to get done or perhaps even we're tired as a church as your church globally we're coming out of this pandemic where you know, we've, we've had to let things go and we've had to change the way we do things and, and we're, we're trying to get back to normal and to dig ourselves out of that, the muck and the mire that we've been in and it's just tiring. And so this morning we come to you, the one who promises rest, and we ask you for it. You tell us it's a gift. So we ask that you might gift it to us this morning. That through your spirit we might find the type of rest that many of us have not found for years. That we would be able to go home and find contentment in the life that you've given us and the things that you're calling us to. That we might have the boldness and the faith to put our trust and hope and actions into your hands. That we might move where you call us to move, even if it's not where we want to go. Because we know it's good. Lord, give us the strength to do that. It is so hard To reject the yoke of this world. Because it looks appealing even though it leads to death. So help us. Walk with us. Be with us. Be with us throughout these next three weeks as we spend time deeply in prayer for your church. Move us in the directions that you want to move us, Lord. There there might be things you're calling us to do that not a single person in this building has thought about yet. We pray that you bring those things to light and that you give us the boldness to move in those directions as your church, as your people. Because this is not our building. This is not our church. Still Presbyterian belongs to you. Guide us, shape us, mold us. Grow us in your likeness. As we take on your yoke, Lord, we pray that it would become at first painful to to be dragged next to you, but that eventually it would just become our nature to walk the same direction as you're walking. That a yoke might not feel burdensome, but that it would be a joy and a gift and a blessing to us. We love you and we praise you. And all his people said, amen.